So picture a man sitting alone in a tent in North Africa. He hasn't always been alone. He hasn't always lived in a tent. He used to be a doctor. He used to live with his wife and four children. But now he's alone with his memories. Some of those he wishes he could forget. Four weeks ago, soldiers stormed his town. They dragged his family outside and forced him to watch as they beat his wife and his daughters and killed his son. And they beat him to within an inch of his life. To be honest, he wishes they'd finished the job. But nonetheless, as you watch in that tent in North Africa, he picks up a tear-drenched Bible. He walks out of his tent to read it with a family who don't know the Lord Jesus. Because as he says, he never realized Jesus was all he had until Jesus really was all he had. And he understands that when Jesus is worth everything, his glory matters most. Another man holds vigil by his daughter's bed in northeast England. She's six months old and she's really sick. The doctors, they don't really know what's wrong with her. And, and he can't help noticing the worried looks on their faces whenever they come to see her. He's at his wit's end. He and his wife have pleaded again and again with the Lord for healing, but she's still really sick. But even in the middle of that, as you watch, as the nursing staff come and go, you hear him quietly telling them of his hope in the Lord Jesus. Because as he says, they're caring for his precious daughter. How could he not share with them the most precious person of all? And he understands. When Jesus is worth everything, his glory matters most. One more man sits alone in a room in southern Europe. As you as your eyes adjust to the dim light, the first thing you notice is the chains. And then the soldiers at the other end. He's at their mercy, to be honest. They can treat him however they want to. Beatings are probable. Ridicule is certain. But even as you watch, he begins to talk about the Lord Jesus yet again. And what you don't know is that talking about Jesus is the very reason he's in that cell chained to those soldiers. But as he looks to his future, he doesn't know whether he'll live or die. But then as a visitor arrives, you watch him dictate a letter encouraging a small church to live and love the Lord Jesus. Because as he says, for him, living is Christ and dying is gain. And he understands that when Jesus is worth everything, His glory matters most. And then there's us. We're not the Rwandan refugee in Burundi 20 odd years ago. We're not my friend in Newcastle seven years ago. And we're certainly not the Apostle Paul 
all those years ago. We sit in a warm, dry church building in the middle of what is still one of the most prosperous cities on the planet. And the question is, do we understand that when Jesus is worth everything, his glory matters most? And you have to wonder, don't you, what does that look like in London in 2017? What does it look like for students and for graduates, the employed and the unemployed, the retired and those just starting out in work? What does it look like for people who are married, people who are single, mums, dads, grandparents, those without children? In London, in 2017, what does it really look like to understand deeply that when Jesus is worth everything, his glory matters most? Well, let's see what God has to say about that from Philippians chapter 1. And the first thing that we need to know about this passage in Philippians is that Paul is writing to friends. He knows this church in Philippi very, very well. And the church have heard about all the problems that Paul's having. He's in prison. He's in chains. He may well be executed very soon. So they send off a church member to go and see Paul, to encourage him, to give him a gift and support him. And so now Paul writes a letter back to them. And in verse 12, he begins to fill them in on how things are going. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And what we need to know is that letters in the first century tended to follow a kind of common convention, just like letters do today. So when we write a letter, though we don't write them that often anymore, but when we do, we start with a dear sir or madam or whoever it is that we're writing to. We indicate why we're writing. We explain, and and we want, as we finish explaining, we want to finish with a yours faithfully or yours sincerely or whatever appropriate. And letters between friends at the time usually included similar kinds of conventions. And there was an early section that began with explaining everything that was going on with the person writing. And Paul even uses conventional words here. Now I want you to know what has happened to me. So often, in the first century, this would be a time for some massive self-promotion, boasting, the kind of thing that you sometimes can hear of in the imagined Christmas letters that people get. It's something like this, you know, we want you to know what has happened with us this year. It really has been a wonderful year all round. Egbert received a generous Christmas bonus again this year, which we aren't even sure what to do with. Esmeralda's Herb Garden won the local Herb Garden of the Year again. And the children are wonderful too, really devoted to their parents. Little Octavius, well, he's mastered grade 8 cello at the age of 7. And you may have seen that Scarlett won the Great British Bake Off this year, even though she's only 11, which was nice. Except for the first century, that wouldn't sound ridiculous. That would be normal, be expected. Or, if things were going badly like they were with Paul, then there would usually be an extended section of despair, of of some self-pity. But look at what Paul writes. And actually, he barely mentions what's happening with him at all. He holds up his chains. Yes, he does. He reminds us that he's in prison, chained to a soldier, facing, facing trial, facing possible execution. But far from being an update on him, this is a gospel update. 
Because he sees that even in this, even because of his situation, Jesus is being proclaimed all the more. Verse 13, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. I mean, pause for a moment. Imagine if you were chained to a soldier 24 hours a day for speaking about the Lord Jesus. Would you not be at least a bit tempted to stop? But Paul thinks, you know, look at, look at this. God's got me chained to this soldier. The only possible explanation is that that soldier is here to listen to me talk about Jesus. And you ask, who's the captive audience here? And as he talks, the soldiers, well, they begin to talk to each other about this guy who just won't stop talking about this man. Until Paul says that the whole imperial guard has heard about Jesus. Why? Because when Jesus is worth everything, his glory matters most. And then verse 14, Paul's beginning to get reports from all sorts of churches with news of increasing boldness. More people telling more people about the Lord Jesus. There's people here about Paul's suffering for the gospel. They're telling Jesus, telling people about Jesus. They're more and more bold. Which, by the way, is a great reminder to us. If you long for more boldness, more boldness to share the Lord Jesus with those around you, well then, as well as praying that the Lord would give you that boldness, you could do a lot worse than read about our brothers and sisters who are undergoing persecution and yet still continuing to preach his name. But then something puzzling happens in this passage, doesn't it? Verse 15, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. And the question is, how can it be that people are preaching Jesus and simultaneously stirring up trouble for Paul. How does that work? And it's a puzzle, isn't it? And to be honest, I'm not sure that we can be exactly sure. What is clear is that these are not false teachers. These are not people teaching a false gospel because Paul would not be rejoicing over those people. We know that. He clearly says that they are preaching Christ. So it seems most likely that this is other preachers who, maybe they're pushing their particular brand, their particular way of doing things, maybe even their own reputation as preachers of the gospel. They've seen the gap that's been left by Paul, now in prison, and they're going, great, you know, now we can step in limelight. We don't know exactly. But what we do know is that Paul's response is astounding. Verse 18, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Because when Jesus is worth everything, his glory matters most. These preachers might think that they're managing to get one over on Paul. Managed to step into his limelight. But what they don't realize is there's no such thing as a limelight for the Apostle Paul. 
All that matters to Paul is that Christ is preached, Christ is proclaimed, Christ is accepted, that Christ is glorified. So what of us, 2,000 years later? Well, imagine this. Imagine this week, revival, gospel revival, gloriously comes to London, to this part of London. People's hearts are deeply convicted of their sin, their need for forgiveness from the Lord Jesus. People are looking to Jesus. The city is excited. The whole city beginning to be wonderfully transformed by the power of the gospel. Universities experience it. Schools, workplaces, homes. And next Sunday morning, as you travel to church, you see thousands of others joining you on the tube or the buses or however else it is you get here. Heading into town for the same reason. Your heart is lifted to see all that God is doing. Thousands of people pack into church. That is the church just up the road. How would you feel? Do you rejoice that Christ is preached? Or do you feel suspicious? You know, those, those people aren't us. They do things differently there. They could even be Baptists. But in fact, you don't need to imagine a situation like that. Just ask yourself what you think when you find out that another gospel-proclaiming, Jesus-glorifying church network that LCPC isn't part of is planting churches and growing in London or further afield. Or when you find out that a friend has started going along to a church which preaches Jesus, but it's not this church. You see, one of the biggest blights on the evangelical church in this country is our tendency to tribalism. Which means that we can get up, getting, end up getting behind certain preachers, certain networks, certain authors in such a way that although we're still seeking to be faithful to the Lord Jesus, yes, actually we're also aiming to do the other guys down. We're aiming to boost our name, boost our camp in what is sadly a very small evangelical world that we inhabit. But Paul will not have it. What does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true. And because of this, I rejoice. Will we rejoice with Paul when we see others progressing, other churches growing? We must, because when Jesus is worth everything, his glory matters most. And you know, far from touching his ministry alone, this is foundational to Paul's entire life. So as he writes, his mind begins to turn to his trial. He could be executed any day. So now, is it time for some self-focus? Not really. Have a look at verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. 
For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And immediately you can ask, what, what does Paul mean by this? What does he mean by this deliverance? Is it just that God's told him that he's going to be released from prison? If that was the case, then actually it kind of makes the dying is gain stuff he's about to get to suddenly a little false or hollow, doesn't it? If Paul knows, really, he's going to be released. No, actually, what is going on is that Paul has a completely different definition of deliverance than we might imagine. Verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So you see, for Paul, deliverance equals not being ashamed. Deliverance equals exalting the Christ that he's been talking to these soldiers about. It means not turning his back on Jesus. Whatever happens, whether he lives to keep talking about the Lord Jesus or whether he dies without his faith in Christ being shaken. And and do you hear his confidence? I eagerly expect... I know that Christ will be exalted whether I die or I live. Could you echo him? Could you echo him in your every day? Let alone if you were facing a trial for your life. I know Christ will be exalted whether I get that job or I don't. I know Christ will be exalted whether I pass those exams or I fail. Whether I get a good grade on my work or not. I know Christ will be exalted whether my kids do well at school or whether they don't. Whether they fulfill the ambitions I have for them or they don't. I know Christ will be exalted whether I win that contract or I don't. Whether I get that promotion or not. Whether I am a success or not. The question is, how is Paul so confident? Answer? For, because, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. When Jesus is worth everything, his glory matters most. Dissect out Paul's reasoning with me. Verse 20, I know Christ will be exalted by my life, he says, because verse 21, to me, to live is Christ. It means serving him, glorifying him as long as I live. It means, verse 22, fruitful labor for me. It means, verse 25, that I get to go on living so that I can go on encouraging others in their faith. So they exalt Christ all the more. I know that Christ will be exalted by my life because when Jesus is worth everything, his glory matters most. In other words, Paul is utterly single-minded, completely driven by giving Jesus everything, by glorifying Jesus in any way he can, by praising Jesus himself, by proclaiming Jesus to others, by, verse 26, becoming a reason for others to boast in Jesus, because he enables Paul to persevere through his imprisonment and through his suffering for the gospel. See, Paul sees his life as one big signpost to Jesus and to his glory. Because when Jesus is worth everything, his glory matters most. 
But then on the other hand, look again. Let's trace the other half of Paul's argument. Verse 20, I know Christ will be exalted this time by my death. Because, verse 21, to me, death is gain. It would mean, verse 23, that I get to be with Christ. I get to be with the one I long for, and there is nowhere else I'd rather be. My death will bring glory to Christ, because there's nothing I want more than going to be with him. Even in death, when Jesus is worth everything, his glory matters most. Think about it. This is absolutely astonishing. I told you before I was at theological college, I was a doctor. And I spent long enough working in medicine, long enough working in elderly care medicine, to see that probably the single biggest thing that we fear as a society today is death. We do everything we can to keep it away. First, we ignore it for as long as we possibly can. And then we claw at medical advances in the hope of prolonging our lives and the lives of others around us. And then when death does come as a society, we hide it away behind sanitized hospital doors so that we don't have to face up to it. Death is the taboo in our society which lives by Woody Allen's famous quip. I don't fear death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. But actually... That's often true for Christians just as much. When Christians talk about death, you're actually still far more likely to hear it called a shame or a tragedy. And don't get me wrong, for those left behind, as I've learned over the last few weeks after Mike Ovi's death, it is horrible. It's one of the things that's supposed to make us run to Jesus, crying out that there's something wrong with this world. But that shouldn't be the whole story. Because there's another story for the Christian, isn't there? Which we often hear so little about. Because for the Christian, to die is gain. A doctor that I knew through the Christian Medical Fellowship knew this. So as he was dying of cancer, with a few weeks to to live, as people asked him how he was, he said that dying, he was on the greatest adventure of his life. And he called death, his coming death, the greatest moment in his life. Why? Because he knew he'd be with the Lord Jesus. So he looked after countless people in the last days of their lives. I am more and more convinced that one of the most important ways we Christians can demonstrate the hope, the life, the good news found in the Lord Jesus to a watching world is by recovering what the Puritans described as dying well. But we'll only discover that, we'll only do that if we recover what it means to live well too. What it means to make Jesus worth everything so that his glory matters most. So we even find Paul wrestling with himself here over what would be better. Verse 22, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. Personally, of course, Paul would rather die to be with Christ, 
But it's actually his very desire for Jesus that spurs him on to pour himself out for the Philippians and for others so that they would praise and glorify Jesus too. Because when Jesus is worth everything, his glory matters most. And that's why Paul's next words in verse 27 are such a challenge to us and to the kids. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens. Suddenly Paul snatches. It's almost like his hand comes right out of the page and grabs us. And snatches us from thinking about him glorifying Christ in his situation to our present and our future. Whatever happens, says Paul, whether you're facing good things or tough things, persecution for your faith, struggles at work, struggles at home, even if you're facing death, live worthy lives. Worthy. In other words, lives which show the worth, the value of the gospel of Christ. That show the worth, the value of Christ himself. Philippians is full of this language. It's why a friend of mine calls it the L'Oreal epistle, you know, because he's worth it. So what exactly is he worth? Well, that is what Paul has already been telling us all the way through. He's worth everything. He's worthy of counting even the most dire situation in the light of the progress of his gospel. He's worthy of facing death with confident joy, knowing that it will bring you to him. He's worthy of living a life poured out so that others praise and glorify him. In short, when Jesus is worth everything, his glory matters most. And the effect that it has when his people grasp that is stunning. Did you see it as Brad read it earlier on? First, they stand firm in one spirit. They strive side by side with one mind. They all share this single-minded devotion to Jesus that Paul has been showing all the way through. They live together, spurring one another on to glorify Jesus together in any way they can. Not trying to get one over on each other. If we really grasp this, well then it means that when someone brings non-Christian friends to church, there's no hint of envy among anyone else because their friends said no. It means that we rejoice together because Jesus is being glorified. When, when someone else is given a leadership role in church, there'll be no glances from others who wonder why they were passed over. No, because altogether we can join with Paul and say, to live is Christ. Because when Jesus is worth everything, his glory, not ours, matters most. And then, when people grasp this, Paul says, they are completely unconcerned by any opposition together. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose. Think about it for a minute. I mean, an attitude like that, it puts opponents in an interesting position, doesn't it? Well, what can they do? These Christians won't stop talking about Jesus, even though they stick them in prison. They beat them and they still go on talking about him. They could kill them and they'll thank them for it. You're sending me to my Lord. 
Again, all together they can join with Paul and say to die is gain. Because when Jesus is worth everything, his glory matters most. And that's why Paul says that this is a sign to those opponents. Because there is nothing more empowering to other Christians, nothing more disarming to the opponents of the gospel than when Christians join together in the face of opposition or of suffering and together they cry out, he is enough. He is enough. They could, you can ridicule us. You could take our jobs. You could marginalize us. You can even take our lives. The world can rise up against us. We could lose everything that we have on this earth. But for us, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For we know, verse 29, that it has been granted to us on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him and to glorify him, whatever happens. Because when Jesus is worth everything, his glory matters most. You know, when, G- when God's people grasp this, the worth of Jesus, then they are going to be shaped by him, to be united for him, for his glory above theirs, for his fame above their comfort. And we saw and heard earlier what that looks like for Paul, for the Philippians. Earlier we heard what it looks like for a refugee in Rwanda, my friend in Newcastle with a sick daughter. But what about us here now? Do we grasp this together? What would it look like if we did? What would you look like if you did? We, as God's people, would be people who strive to love Jesus as we serve him. We would be people who can and do let go of our own roots to our own glory. Whether that's in our studies, or in our work, or in our families, or even in the roles that we take up as we serve in church. We would be people who spur others on. Those around us to love Jesus more as they serve him. Who rejoice to see them bearing fruit for the Lord Jesus. We would be people who praise him for one another. Who are able to give glory and praise Jesus for the success that others have. The successes they have at work or in study. The friends they bring along to church when ours have said no. We would be people who don't try to get one over on one another. And what would you look like as a church? What would LCPC look like? Well, you'd be a church that would be secure in your own place, rejoicing as God blesses you and rejoicing in the blessing and growth of other churches around you who are preaching the Lord Jesus. You'd be a church who'd be filled with people that are excited that you get to stand together defending and proclaiming the gospel in this part of London and beyond. Whatever happens, living in a manner worthy of the gospel and rejoicing together because when Jesus is worth everything, his glory matters most. Shall we pray?